0: This is episode 89 of AA Beyond Belief, the podcast, and I'm your host, John S. In today's episode, I will be speaking with Gary Bell from Hartlepool, England. Gary and I will be discussing a promising treatment for alcohol use disorder known as the Sinclair Method. The Sinclair Method utilizes the prescription Naltrexone to eliminate addiction to alcohol through the process of pharmacological extinction. Gary, who participated in the documentary film, One Little Pill, is well versed on the subject from first-hand experience, and I think you'll find this an interesting discussion. Hello, I'm here with uh, Gary Bell, and he is from Hartlepool, England. I hope I pronounced that right, Gary. How you doing? Uh, I'm doing very well, John. Well, it's nice to have you here. We're, we're going to talk today about the Sinclair Method. And, uh, you know, on AA Beyond Belief, we actually published an article about the Sinclair Method um, shortly after we started the site. And it's been one of our more popular articles. It's had like 27,000 views. Also, we have that same article on our YouTube channel, and it's gotten like 4,000 views or whatever. So it's a topic that a lot of people are interested in. And Gary, are you actually practicing and following the regimen of the S- Sinclair Method yourself?
1: Not at the moment. Okay. I first went on to the Sinclair Method. It was actually five years ago. Well, it's going to be five years come the 2nd of April, that it's going to be my TSM anniversary. So um, it's coming up for five years. But what happened was was that using naltrexone, I was able to cut down my drinking through a process of pharmacological extinction mm-hmm. to the point where I just didn't physically crave alcohol anymore. And what's happened is I've been able to abstain. So I am the abstinent. There are some people who use the Sinclair method to moderate, to socially drink, but I pretty much had such a bad time with alcohol for most of my adult life that I was actually quite keen to become abstinent. So I don't really mourn the drink. That's why I actually don't take Naltrexone myself now. You only take Naltrexone one hour before you drink, you see.
0: And you know, one of our uh, our mutual friends, John Stewart, he told me that there was a certain percentage of people who use the Sinclair method that actually do just become abstinent. I think he said it's like twenty percent of them or something like that. I can't, re- I don't know if the, what that if that if that statistics right or not. But he told me a good percentage of people actually do. There's a lot to talk about here. It's going to be an interesting uh, topic. Um, why don't we start? if you could kind of describe the problem that you experienced with alcohol and we'll just kind of go from, you know, your problem and when you started seeking help and how you discovered the Sinclair method.
1: Okay. Yeah. I first started to have problems with alcohol in my early to mid twenties. And it was during a period when I was suffering a lot of work related stress and I was turning to the booze because I wasn't happy in my job. And It was quite a confrontational job uh, working in the civil service. I had a lot of anxiety and a lot of insomnia. So what I was doing was I was having a can of Carlsberg Special Brew, which is a popular drink here in England, uh, once a night to help myself to sleep. So I was self-medicating, essentially. But what happened was that... As I started doing this more often, my tolerance increased. So rather than it being one strong can of lager at at night, it became two and then it became three. And it ended up really affecting my job performance and making me feel quite ill. And what happened was I reached a bit of a crisis point with it where I realized that I needed to knock the booze on the head. But, much to my dismay, I found that when I actually tried to stop, I found it very, very hard. I found I could stop. Stopping wasn't the problem. It was staying stopped. I would come off a binge, and then I would swear off the booze completely, saying, that's it, never again, etc., etc. And then something would creep in. One, two, maybe three days later, this little sort of this voice in my head saying that it wanted booze. I would find that I would have beer commercials running in my mind. So at some point, I sort of crossed over into actual addiction without realizing it. And what happened was, I mean, this was back in the late 1990s and there wasn't much in the way of treatment services here in Hartlepool. There was an addictive behaviour service, but that was a service that catered more towards opiate addicts. You know, what they did offer in the way of treatment for people with alcohol addiction um, was quite scant. I found myself gravitating towards Alcoholics Anonymous, because, of course, whenever you switch on the TV or watch right. a movie, you've always got pretty much adverts for air, you know? Sure. And it wasn't like I expected it to be. Not going on what I'd seen in movies. Right. And, uh, I was quite shocked, actually. But, you know, because there wasn't really anything much in, in the way of an alcohol service, and... Nothing that, that they could really offer me there. And there was just AA. It was a little bit like Hobson's choice. So I stuck with AA for, for a while. And I had problems with it, John, basically because, uh, I am an atheist and there were certain aspects of, of the language of Alcoholics Anonymous and also the, the 12 steps, which were like, Trying to fit in a square socket into a round hole for me, and um, which I found very difficult to reconcile, but right. I did meet some lovely people there, and you know some of the people that I did meet there are still friends, and they do get a lot out of Alcoholics Anonymous, and it has I believe genuinely helped them so from from that point of view, even though even though I had difficulty with it, and even though I couldn't stay sober in, in AA, I'm not looking back on it now, aside from some some resentments mm-hmm. which I had when I left AA because I had a falling out with my former sponsor. A few years on, I looked back at it, and I think... When it comes to people in, in AA, I think, you know, who who it is working for, I think good for them. So I'm not anti-AA, no. though I've gone on to use the Sinclair method, a different um, tre- treatment method. Um, yes. I'm not one of these people who's, uh, who you might see on the Internet who write all these angry things all oh. the time.
0: Yeah, you know, it's kind of ridiculous to be in camps when it comes to recovery because there isn't. In my opinion, um, or and there shouldn't be maybe a, a, a one solution that fits all people. You know, what helps a person is what that person should do, in my opinion. And we're fortunate now uh, in this day and age that there are more options available to people. And I tell you, you are not the only one who is put off by the religiosity of Alcoholics Anonymous. <laughs> there are a lot of us. And that is just going to be coming more and more common um, as as we become more secular uh, in North America, Europe and everywhere else. So, yeah, very understandable. So when you were going to these meetings, was it helping you at all? I mean, were you, were you still struggling with um, um, staying off?
1: Yes, I was still very much struggling. I mean, I did take some good things from it. You know, I thought that that the acronym HALT was a very good acronym. I mean, I think we should explain for some people stands for hungry, angry, tired. Lo- the four things which you should avoid being because they're they're really bad triggers for someone who maybe who you know has this addiction and um i also got a lot out of the community aspect of of a i mean at its most basic it's about two or more alcoholics getting together to each other which is a brilliant thing you know in in essence, it's just a lot the other stuff
0: yeah i agree i I think if there's any great value to it it's that If a person is having a lot of life problems as a result of their addiction, whether it be legal or work or relationship problems, it's kind of nice to have a group of people that have had similar problems that they've been able to come out of and and talk with those people and be comforted by those people. I mean, that was that was my case, I think, was just having people who would listen to me in an understanding way, I think, was a value. But that that was just my experience at that time. Um, I'm like you though. I was also kind of surprised, uh, by the religious nature of it. When, when I, when I went in there, I had no idea. I knew about Alcoholics Anonymous, only what I would see in the movies and so forth. And they don't really show people in the movies gathering around at the end of the meeting to say the Lord's Prayer or, you know, all the other uh, prayers and so forth. So I was really surprised by that. And I was not at the time I was first going to meetings. I wasn't an atheist, but I became an atheist or realized rather I was an atheist decades later. And upon having that realization, um, it was a kind of a it's kind of a difficult thing for me to figure out, am I going to stay or leave or how am I going to make this work? And then ultimately, and we can talk about this later, I found the secular AA community where I feel at home. But can we go into a little bit about Let's start about what the Sinclair method is. You mentioned pharmacological extinction. And from what I understand of this is the the theory behind this is that alcohol use disorders, which is the proper name for this, is um, actually caused by our reward system so that we, when we drink alcohol endorphins are released that make us feel good. So we're being conditioned that a drink makes us feel good. um, And that is what sets up the addiction. Am I getting that right and can you expand upon this a little bit
1: you've got the essence of it right yeah what what happens is that endorphins are released and then the um the neural pathways which which develop become super highways in the brain so what start out as little small sort of pathways become super highways super reinforced and it's a bit like overlearning learning a behavior um you know how you learn something to the point where it becomes ingrained and it becomes wrought, you know like muscle memory well something similar happens with alcohol addiction and this is what it is it's it's over learning and the, and what Dr. Sinclair, the, the inventor of, uh, of this treatment discovered, um, when he was doing studies with, with rats was that there was an actual way to potentially reverse that by using, um, opiate blockers, mm-hmm. which, um, I mean, I mean, they're often used in medicine these days, uh, to bring someone um, who's, who's overdosed on, on, heroin into recovery, you know, for, to, to bring them out of that overdose. But it also works upon the endogenous opoidergic system, which is the, the endorphin system to actually block that. And what happens is when you take the medication an hour before you would normally drink, the reward system is actually blocked and no reinforcement takes place. And the more you actually drink, with the endorphin system blocked, what what happens is that these super highways actually start to shrink down again. So so it's it, it's kind of like nature's delete button, and we uh, actually
0: kind of restructure our brain, we rewire our brain. Yeah, yeah. you know, um, I I was. Um, Oh, a few months ago, I I, I had a podcast with uh, Dr. Nicole. She she's in an addiction, um, she's in addiction medicine, and she was talking about how the problem is a dopamine problem. And I guess it's kind of similar, but maybe both things happen. And um, do, do you know anything about that theory of addiction? Uh, and if if um, Naltrexone also works with that part of the problem, the the dopamine. Um, levels being raised through the consumption of alcohol?
1: Well, it's interesting that you should ask that, because although I don't really know much about the dopamine system, mm-hmm. a good friend of mine, a guy called Robert Raplian, who did uh, some very early podcasts with um, Dr. Sinclair when he was st- still alive, did actually mention to me that that what happens is that as these neural pathways are actually altered our dopamine actually decreases so that's something that that robert happened happened to mention but it's it, it's something that that incidentally happens as a result of the process got it so uh, so that's what what robert um mentioned to me okay uh, which, which seems to make some some sense but i'm not really an authority on it right. it's just basically whether there's actually a knock-on effect between taking naltrexone using the sinclair method and whether it has an effect on um the dopamine system it's it's not a question that really comes up very often but having spoken to a friend of mine recently, what he said is that there's very, very little evidence that it really does have anything in the way of a knock-on effect. It's it's not really being demonstrated. The person that I spoke to, by the way, I should explain, um, is a guy called Robert Raplian, who is quite notable for being one of the first people to popularise the Sinclair Method on the internet with his Intellectual Icebergs uh, website and podcast, which was a science podcast. And um, he was really one of the first people to actually speak about the Sinclair Method on on the internet, which is quite interesting. But Robert really knows his science. I mean, Mm -hmm. he's been at this much longer than I have, so...
0: Um, I think I can pretty much take his
1: word for that.
0: Now that seems to make sense. I, as I was uh, kind of reading on this a little bit, I thought, well, you know, there's a lot of things that are going on here. There's probably, you know, multiple parts of our brain that are affected um, by this. But this, uh, this method has a 80% effective rate. How do they measure that by the way? What is a successful outcome of the Sinclair method?
1: It's whether someone can get below whether they can get below the WHO's recommended safety level, whether they can get within that umbrella so um, I forget how many units it is a week. but if whether you can get within that safe range, that is a success. So it's not necessarily abstinence Right. It, it's whether someone can can actually get within that
0: range right to where you basically are drinking normally uh without the developing the craving um going on benches and etc I, I get it can you talk a little bit about your personal experience with this method and and if you could also just kind of start from the beginning how did you learn about it and did, can you tell us about your experience when you first started doing it
1: yeah how I first learned about the Sinclair Method is a little bit of a strange story insofar as that um, I actually learned about it from, from quite an unlikely place. I learned about it from the Orange Papers of all places, mm-hmm. which <laughs> um, which is quite a famous anti-AA right, website. Right. And this was when I was going through my angry sort of phase against it against it, it, after having just left. Mm-hmm. That's why I was sort of reading that that website, because I was feeling a little bit disgruntled. Sure. Um, I just happened to read references to the Sinclair Method on, on uh, Orange's site. I, I believe it was in a couple of readers' letters, in fact. Um, I don't think he'd actually written an article on it at that point it was just that I'd noticed in in the letter section that there'd been a couple of um, letters around it and a few people mentioning uh, Roya Scapper's book The Cure for Alcoholism and when I first heard about this I thought that it was a load of horse manure to be honest with you I was very, I was very skeptical about it because I think basically because I didn't really have that much insight about how my own addiction worked you know and I had all these sort of different ideas and different theories around how how alcohol addiction works you know with with different models of addiction and stuff and I'd always thought that it was kind of like a mental health thing or some some sort of psychological weakness i didn't really think of it in terms of a biological model to to be truthful mm-hmm. not so much but when i did a little bit of reading around this when i did a little bit of further reading after looking at the w- wikipedia page and uh, eventually getting the book it was a little bit like a light bulb moment you know as as i read through scappers explanation of uh, of how the addiction actually works and that's uh, that in combination with a lot of the studies which have been done there's been something like i believe it's now over 120 double blind placebo studies on on this method and and a lot of them have been quite successful you know they've shown some nice results a lot of people either being able to, to reduce their alcohol intake quite substantially or being able to abstain from it. So there was a lot of evidence which, which was quite helpful, you know, because it was quite convincing. Anyway, uh, what happened was that I was going through quite a bad spell around about 2012. M- my health was, was getting worse um i i had really bad blood pressure i I mean it was something like 165 or over 105 my typical blood pressure readings and i had cholesterol through the roof and also my liver function tests were starting to look not good and i was just starting to feel quite ill and not not really very well both mentally and physically so i wanted to stop but i had this sort of problem where where i just couldn't seem to abstain for any length of time and this this is what i think sort of came to sort of push me into investigating the sinclair method a bit more and also getting in touch with claudia christian who i um, sent a message to on Facebook, and Claudia got in touch with me the same night, which is amazing.
0: Her TED Talk, by the way, on that on this is really excellent. Um, I'm going to post a, a link to that with the podcast. Um, she did a really good job with that TED Talk in a very concise way, kind of explains um, this and how and her battles with alcoholism and um, her frustration with not being able to stop and uh, discovering this and what it meant to her it was was pretty powerful
1: yeah yeah I mean I mean one of the reasons why I sort of why I got so involved with the campaign and why I agreed to take part in the documentary was as a result of my own frustration of not being able to access this treatment Mm -hmm. once I heard about it and then did, did my homework and then once I went to visit my doctor and showed him load of, loads of stuff which I'd printed out and showed him the book, I was just met with um, absolute derision. And, and it was horrible because I was met with derision when I, you know, uh, tried to show him this, this stuff on, on this method, which is supposed to be really successful. And it was just horrible, you know, not being able to access it, yet knowing that it could really potentially great, greatly help me. I felt a little bit like, I mean, it's a little bit sort, sort of like someone with a terrible illness, such as diabetes or some form of cancer or, or something, you know, discovering a treatment that mm-hmm. could potentially really help them and, and being denied it, you know, you'd, you'd feel quite angry.
0: Yeah, it's really weird, isn't it, that that it wouldn't be more, more well known. You would think that doctors um, would be up on science and they would be reading these studies and would want to try it with their patients, especially when so many of them are not being helped through the entire abstinence model. Um, mm. It's interesting, you know, when I was reading about all of this, that the entire abstinence model, I guess it's great for me because I'm abstinent now, but you know, um they used they always say in AA that if you if you go back to drinking, it's gonna be as if you had never stopped um that entire time. And it seems like the science kind of bears that out, that when you if if you are abstinence, um it just makes your next relapse all the worse.
1: Yeah, it's interesting that you should mention that because this is exactly what Dr. Sinclair found from his studies was that you know, once someone gone through rehab and they'd become detoxed and got past the physical stages, it didn't actually end there. There was a, There was a psychological element of craving that still existed, even after uh, physical dependence ended. The name that he used for it was the alcohol
0: deprivation
1: effect. Yes, the A- right,
0: I've heard that. And, mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, and and what what he wrote was that this can act, this actually increases with with abstinence, which is what he found was that the longer you would actually deprive yourself of alcohol, having become addicted to it the worst the craving would get and it would it would actually go up like a gradient. Uh, so so it's quite interesting that they should point that out because um I think that that there is a lot of truth in it. Um, I mean the longest I ever was sober whilst I was in AA was six months. Um I think it was actually just under six months. And I can tell you it was horrible it was white knuckle city trying to stay stay sober it it was um, it was awful I mean even though it wasn't an issue of physical dependence Mm -hmm. so so many months in because of course the alcohol was out of my system so I didn't need it to stop me having a seizure or anything like that still there was there was something wrong there was something there. There was a constant craving, and it—it it was like it was like what what would happen is I would have to step on eggshells around my triggers because if if I felt—I mean, it goes back to the whole thing again. Mm-hmm. If I felt hungry, angry, lonely, tired, uh, you know, anxious, whatever, straight away I'd be be getting these beer adverts in my head. Sure.
0: Yeah, the first six months was healthy. But even after that, um, it was, uh, even into my second year, the closest I ever came to drinking was, was during my second year. In AA, especially the, 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 group I used to go to, um, I used to hear people say all the time that their, their desire to drink was lifted. Now, these were all people who believed in God and so forth. I've never had it lifted. I, I don't know. I mean, uh, to this day, if I could drink, I would, I, I would, um, I just love it, you know, and, and that's kind of an odd thing. I've been sober now for, I'll be coming up on 30 years in July. And it's not like okay. I think about drinking very often. Um, I don't, you know, hardly ever do I even think about it, but. But I could at times. And I'll tell you uh, one time when I actually, it was really, fairly recently, a couple of years ago when I first heard about the Sinclair Method, I thought, damn, that is what I want to do. <laughs> that's exactly what I want to do. But uh, obviously I've learned that that's not. this is not for someone like me who has been abstinent for a long, a long period of time. That It's not something that they would recommend for someone like me. But I do find it interesting that there's still a part of me that does long for it, you know? Um, and I guess I just have to, um, I, I guess if I, th- the more I think about it, the more, the more I could, I could exacerbate that, I guess. But um, I just kind of focus on what I'm doing. And, 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 and I guess I, I guess I, I've got to the point where I'm more rational about it. So that even though there's a part of me that would love to drink, there's a rational side of me that does take over now that says, no, my past experience tells me clearly I cannot drink normally. So that and then all the support that I get from from people as well, I guess, helps me out. But enough about me. So can you tell me about when you started the Sinclair Method? Um, how did you finally get a doctor to prescribe it? And can you kind of go into what it was like for you as you um, started using this method?
1: Yeah, sure. Yeah. Unfortunately, I didn't go the route of actually getting the medication from a doctor. I was very naughty, and I um actually imported it from Canada, which strictly speaking is illegal but, but I simply couldn't get it mm-hmm. from from anywhere here in the u k. There was a possibility that I could get it prescribed privately but money was an issue for me as well at the time Mm -hmm. so you know given that I felt a little bit like Oliver Twist begging for his bowl of gruel you know when it (laughs) can go go to the medical services and getting doors slammed in my face I I sort of pressed the it" button just said right you know what that's it I'm going to import the damn stuff from an online (laughs) pharmaceutical vendor and that's what I did and it was around about Easter 2013 that that I actually got my package I believe that it was 60 tablets that I ordered and even though I ordered it through Canada it, it was actually delivered from a factory in India which which was quite interesting but in any case there I was, armed with my copy of Roy Scapper's book, The Cure for Alcoholism. That sort of became my, um, my equivalent of AA's big book. Right. I was doing this. So, so I sat there with, with this book and with a stopwatch, and I got the first pill out, and I already had my alcohol there, which I bought from an off-license in, in my town. And, and I set the stopwatch for one hour, And then I took the pill and quite truthfully, I wasn't that impressed from the first session with it Um, was no bolt of lightning. I didn't feel really much in, in the way of any sort of dramatic difference. Mm -hmm. It it is interesting though, because looking at my, because I kept a drink diary, which I, I mean, I've actually kept my drink diaries and they're on my blog by the way, if anyone wanted to look at them. But what's interesting is that with that first drink diary, something I did note was the fact that for some reason, reason my first drink tasted a bit less sugary. But after that first can, I didn't notice any perceptible difference. It, it depends upon who you ask, really, when, when it comes to using mm-hmm. naltrexone. Some, pe- some people say that it has... A, a very big numbing effect on them. Mm-hmm. But other people, so, such as myself, don't feel that, that much in, in the way of any difference. Also, another thing is that some, is that like any medication, the side effects there as well. And again, I didn't really have any issues with side effects. So, so really going through this process, I was very lucky. You know, it was very mm-hmm. much incident and as I found that I got through the first week and then the second week using these pills with with each drinking session I found that that quite quickly there was a decline in the amount that I was drinking Um, it it was interesting because I'd have my can of Carlsberg special brew Mm -hmm. um, on the coffee table as I was listening to music or watching TV and I would forget that it was there, which never happened nah. to me. But I, I'd be sitting for an hour or, or so, and my TV program would end. I love loads of American cop shows. I, I'm always <laughs> talking, um, things like Law and Order, so so something like that would end, and then I, I'd idly glance at the coffee table and I think, "Oh, hold on, I haven't drank the rest of my can." Interesting. And, yeah, and. In any case, that went on for 13 weeks, and what I found was that I was drinking less and less, and another interesting thing happened was that, um, because I mentioned about this specific brand of alcohol, mm-hmm. this really strong stuff that's, that's 9%, mm-hmm. uh, Carlsberg Special Brew, I found that a few weeks in, I felt quite sickly stuff. I, 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 I felt quite sickly. it felt too strong for me and and that's because I was gradually reducing so my, so as I was gradually reducing as my craving was reducing, and as, and as I was drinking less, my tolerance was reducing as well. so So this stuff, which I was absolutely in in love with. Now suddenly tasted like muck.
0: Did you have uh, any pleasurable effects at all from the alcohol? Oh, yeah, sure.
1: Sure. I did. Um, initially, you know, it, as, as I was going through the process, but as I say, what, what happened was that I start, it started to be very strong for me. And, and, you know, I imagine that, that Carlsberg special brew became a little bit like, how it is for a civilian to drink it because mm-hmm. most average people who drink it want to spit it out. <laughs> so, so, so it wasn't a sign that I was becoming abnormal. It was a sign that, that, that I was actually, you know, becoming a civilian again. <laughs> civilian by, by the way, is my term for normal people. Right. <laughs> so, what happened was I started, I, I, um, I went to the off license and I bought some Newcastle Brown Ale, which is a substantially, uh, weaker drink, you know, it has, it has a much lesser, um, alcohol content. And I started drinking that as well for, for the, um, instead for the final few, few weeks. And I just tapered off with that. And I reached a point where, because they're not very big, these bottles of Newcastle Brown Ale, I reached a point where I was just drinking maybe like half a bottle of that a night, which isn't very much quantity-wise, and and then I just stopped. And that was what, what we call our extinction
0: point point. That is so interesting. And so you just stop. You're just abstinent from, you don't drink at all. I have drank
1: on a couple of occasions, mm-hmm. a couple of special occasions over the intervening years. The last time was two mm. years ago, but I've always drank with the naltrexone Good. in my system since then. So so on these two occasions, I did have some, some naltrexone um, in, in my actual flat. So I was able to take it and basically vaccinate myself against uh, against becoming right. rejected
0: gosh that's that's wonderful you know um it's i thought I th- it's kind of interesting i was when i was watching the the documentary um Claudia seems to use this like she carries it, the the pills with her every, all the time, so that like she just drinks on a re- regularly, and she just and she'll just take the naltrexone if I understood that right. So some people will do that you know, for the rest of their lives, I suppose, and then other people, you know, a good percentage of them might just go on and say, oh, I don't really care for it. You know, they might not hardly ever drink. I guess. Interesting
1: question. I think that what happened to myself was that I just wanted it to end pretty much. I felt as if over the course of my adult life, I drank more than enough for a lifetime. I just wanted it to, to simply end. I think that also what's happened is that I, you, you, you know what? I thought that becoming abstinent was going to be really boring. <laughs> I did. I thought that that it was going to be as boring as hell. Yeah. I absolutely love it. I love, you know, having... Um, that freedom again, and also that that extra bandwidth in my head now that I'm not addicted that I can use to concentrate on other hobbies. And, absolutely. Um, I mean there's there's so much which I do nowadays uh, which I wasn't able to do when when I was still drinking that I'm so grateful for. You know what I mean, one thing which I've got into in a big way is weight training. Um, oh, okay. A hobby of mine is powerlifting. Uh-huh. And, I mean, I go to the gym three three or four times a week, and I'm up to over 110, 120 bench press now. Oh, goodness. Yeah, yeah. And, um... And, and it's great. You know, it's like a new lease of life. It's, it's a little bit like having, uh, having a second midlife crisis. It's
0: funny. It seems like I'm lately speaking with people who love to exercise. (laughs) I, I used to, I used to, but after I got into podcasting, all exercising stopped and I need to, I need to find some. I need to find some balance, as they say. So, um, you know, I think that this is a very promising thing. I don't I don't know if there's a human being alive that hasn't had been affected in some way by alcohol use disorder, whether it be someone in their family, a good friend or themselves personally. Um, of course, I've been in AA for a long time, so I've known um, countless numbers of people who have died from this. Um, I have been with them um, when they have gone through the agony of withdrawal. Um, I've had um, people in my family. I have currently a brother who's struggling. Um, I've seen people um, come in and out of AA struggling. In fact, there's one time. Um, after I learned about, um, the Sinclair method, there was a guy who I really liked him and, and he was just struggling with it being not being able to, um, stay sober. I said, have you ever heard of naltrexone? He had never even had heard of it. I said, you should, you should talk to your doctor about it. But of course over here, they don't prescribe it the way that Dr. Sinclair would, would ask that it be prescribed. They, 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 they do it, I guess, as a way that you take it every single day and, and then you don't have a craving. I don't know how they, how they came up with that, but. Anyway, I, I I thought it was appropriate for me at a uh, at the end of the meeting to let him know that th- that this exists. I think if my brother-in-law had known about it and had tried it, it could have saved his life. Um, you know, when he I, I watched him go through uh, withdrawal, and it was the most horrifying thing I've ever seen in my life. And uh, when he got out of the hospital, they sent him to the Salvation Army, and he didn't. He was he was um you know he's somebody who had been abused by religion. You know, and uh, he couldn't stand it. So he left. He said, if this is the cure for alcoholism, he didn't have anything anything to do with it. So he ended up dying. And it w- how wonderful it would have been to be able to say, hey, look, here's an option. Try this. Try taking this and see if it works for you. It could have made all the difference in the world, you know. Yeah.
1: I mean, something else which I do think is, why not combine the best of both worlds? Why does everything always have to be so binary? It, it, you know, reduced to the option of either right. either or, or, you know, why not actually combine something like a 12 step format, right? A secular AA group and TSM. Because even though, even though the protocol mm-hmm. of the Sinclair method goes against the doctor's opinion, it goes against what Dr. William Silkworth knows about. Right abstinence being the the only way the fact of the matter of course he
0: practiced medicine in the 1930s by the
1: way he did but but the fact of the matter is that you know the only requirement for membership of aa is a desire to stop drinking right so you know someone has that genuine desire to stop drinking Mm -hmm. and they're using the sinclair method for that goal Mm -hmm then could could they not say that that you know that that um would, would could they not qualify for air membership
0: i think they would uh, quite frankly I, I i see room for that um yeah if if someone is going and, and this might be the future too you know doctors may prescribe this for people they might say i tell you what um, here's, here's a method where uh, we can cure your alcohol use disorder. Um, you're going to take this pill one hour before you drink. And I know you have all these other life, life issues going on and as, uh, associated with your drinking. And, you know, you got these various support groups you can attend. Uh, AA, you have, um, Uh, refuge recovery, you have smart, you have all kinds of different resources that, that can be used along, along with the, the medication. Heck, I did the same thing for depression. I take a, um, I take an antidepressant medication, but I've also, I also benefit from therapy, you know? So, um, yeah, I see room for that. Now, um, the problem with AA is that it's stuck in the past, but I, but I think there's a, a growing movement within the fellowship of trying to, uh, bring us more into the 21st century, hopefully prepare us for the 22nd century. Um, but even within our secular AA community, and we're pretty open minded, it's kind of a controversial um, topic. Um, a lot of people believe that, oh, it's not our job to um, let people know of other alternative, uh, solutions and so forth. I kind of disagree. I mean, I, I guess it's not, um, AA, you know, official responsibility, but I think as a human being, I have a responsibility to let people know of different, um, avenues of recovery, in my opinion. Um, yeah, there, there, there there's definitely resistance now. You know, we, we have a battle just trying to get, uh, modern literature. Um, written that addresses the program of recovery of AA and language of the 21st century, you know? So updating the doctor's opinion, by the way. Yeah, Dr. Silkworth, who practiced medicine in the 1920s and 1930s, you know, um, how relevant is he uh, in the 21st century?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting because, I mean, mean, the way Bill W. actually looked at the disease of alcoholism was he saw it as a threefold illness, Mm -hmm physical mental spiritual Mm -hmm. he saw the program of alcoholics as a way to actually combat the mental and the physical aspects and what he looked at with niacin something which he wrote three pamphlets on you know very famously was to try to find a way to to help people to combat the biological component Sure. And it it just really interests me, you know, because I I wish that there was a time machine, you, you know what I mean, a time mm-hmm. machine to actually bring Bill Wilson, you know, in, yeah. into the here and now and actually show him uh, the Sinclair method because I don't necessarily think he would be averse at all. No, no,
0: he would have tried it. He tried LSD. It,
1: yeah, yeah, you know, it just seems quite strange when I speak to some AA members and they seem to be very anti-medication. And it it sort of makes me think, well, well, you don't really sort of know your own history, because of right. course, you know, your own founder was was quite pro science.
0: Within AA, there's um there like within the rest of society, I guess, there's there's a bit of a divide. Um, you've got a, a, a large percentage of people who want to replicate the past, you know. Uh, Rather than, rather than build on the work of the people who preceded us and, and look forward, they believe that they have to follow the exact way that they think these people did it back almost a hundred years ago now, you know? Um, I find, I find it kind of frustrating. Um, but I think what's, what will happen is, um, you know, as society changes, you know, people, the older that damn book gets, the more, the more ridiculous it gets. Um, our group now, I, 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 we started a secular AA group in Kansas City. We, we don't use the big book. It would be, it would be silly. I mean, I can see it as a historical document to, to kind of understand where we came from, but the language of that book doesn't speak to the 30 year old of <laughs> today. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah. so, you know um yeah but you know i speak as an aa member and someone who loves it but i also recognize a lot of the flaws and the and i'm a little frustrated also with um this love for the past this this weird desire to cling to one specific narrow-minded way but Mm -hmm. and that's not to say that's the clear method is for everybody i you know it's not for me um but it would it might have been for my brother-in-law who's no longer with us you know uh, my sister-in-law maybe she could have benefited from it i don't know what her what her status is now i worry too you know there's a lot of people who um, are waiting for liver transplants who can't stop drinking you know i wonder if the sinclair method would help them good point it might it,
1: you know that stage where someone has actually got a cirrhotic liver it it may be prohibitive mm. to have- naltrexone given that it does have hepatic toxicity potential
0: yeah. you
1: know i can't believe that i just pronounced those words correctly <laughs> I'm, I'm amazed at myself but it can put a little bit of a strain on the, on the liver but yeah that makes sense for, for normal people it's only at six times its normal optimum dose so putting that into perspective it, it has about as much about as much risk as as paracetamol paracetamol is quite safe mm. take one tablet or even two tablets but for even the slightly built man six par- paracetamol tablets can can actually be quite dangerous so yeah that makes you know, sense. i think I, I think the the liver toxicity issue when it comes to naltrexone is perhaps a little bit overstated But it does need – but, yes, you're quite right. It's something that any any, uh, physician needs to bear in mind.
0: Yeah, it's heartbreaking. You know, I I read a study not that long ago about um, liver transplant patients, and it's just really, really, really sad. These people are dying, and um, their life depends on a new liver. And um, anyway, so – Oh,
1: something I should quickly mention. Sorry Uh to interrupt you. Um, we're just talking about the potential for liver toxicity. Mm-hmm. There is nalmethane, which is in fact naltrexone's sister drug. Oh, yeah. That, that's actually um, available on the NHS mm-hmm. now in, in, in Britain and in other places. That in fact isn't processed through the liver. Oh. So, so that doesn't have the same potential. For liver toxicity that naltrexone does but it does the caveat I, is that it does come with other side effects issues with it so there is that to bear in mind potentially if if you know the the liver is it is a bit of a worry a, yeah a
0: issue I was wondering, um, that too, if, if the uh, National Health Service in the UK is now beginning to prescribe this and if doctors in the UK are now recommending, uh, the Sinclair method.
1: Good question. It's uh, honestly, John, it's a geographic lottery mm. in, in the UK with lots and lots of places not prescribing it. Even though they, they should be prescribing it, they, they're not, which is a shame. But it is interesting because I do have a friend of mine, a gentleman called Paul Turner, who is, um, he, he's actually quite a high ranking. Um, he's, he's a nurse who works with his partner in, in his private clinic. And it's interesting what, what he said about the fact that even though nalmaphene is available, they do actually prefer to prescribe naltrexone because it, In fact, has less side effects, Mm. which is interesting.
0: Yeah. I, I don't know if it's, if it's used in the United States. I mean, I know that people use naltrexone, but not, um, the way that Dr. Sinclair suggested that it be used. Um, I've, Mm. I've actually had people in my home group who've talked about the benefits of using naltrexone and who have actually drank on it. And I think that their relapse was, um, less significant because, because of that. In fact, at one of our, at one of our meetings, the guy, is kind of funny, he thanked um, AA and Naltrexone for his sobriety. <laughs> so that might be the future, I don't know. <laughs> but only only in our group would you hear that here anyway. Well,
1: well, I'll tell you what, I mean, you know, science is just as good as as any other higher power, I think. I mean, I think if you're going to choose a higher power, then why not use science? Why not use pharmacological extinction i mean hey you know right. it's,
0: it, it's better than a rock right a do- yeah I, I, I love science and and i i'm very interested interested in the uh science of addiction too and and have really only become interested in it believe it or not fairly recently over the last year or so um, learning more about it and um it's it's a fascinating topic but it makes sense a good book i would recommend to you that if you haven't heard about it and it was written by a fellow Englishman, it's um, Alcohol Explained. And he talks about how um, people become addicted to alcohol in much the way that um, that it's described by the Sinclair method. But it's something that you might want to check out. And he also has a blog and a um, Facebook page that's kind of interesting. I'm just looking for a pen. <laughs> yeah. His name's William Porter, Alcohol Explained. Now he, he um, advocates abstinence, but he um, Actually, in, when he wrote his book, he says, You know, don't, you don't have to stop drinking when you're reading this book. Read this book. And he actually encourages people to kind of track their drinking and ask themselves, you know, how, how they feel when they're drinking and so forth. Because the whole idea is that pretty much just as uh, Sinclair described, it's, it's almost a learned behavior um, that you, you, you get those rewards from drinking. And then when, when the alcohol leaves you, um, you become a little bit, you know, irritable because you're not, you, you know, those, those, um, anyway, I'll let you read it. So, uh, thank you. Uh, very interesting conversation. I'd like to get, um, if you can, uh, email me later, the links to your blog, um, so I can post that with the podcast. Sure. Yeah. And, um, we'll also post some links to, I, I, I think this is a new website, the SinclairMethod.com. Um, yeah.
1: That's actually a website that my friend Mike Dempsey set up. Of- Oh. Um I I believe that's the guy who did the the article you mentioned at the beginning mm-hmm. of the podcast. I, I believe he was actually the author.
0: Yeah, I would um that's I would <laughs> recommend that. It's a really cool website. And I actually I was reading um from that website to kind of prepare for this interview. <laughs> so <laughs> it was very helpful. So some good information out there. And then the what's the other foundation called? It's called CH three or C it's c3 foundation c3 foundation i've actually gone on there they have a forum on there um and i actually went on there because i was concerned at one time about my sister-in-law and i guess she's doing okay now but you know anyway it's kind of nice to have that outreach where at that particular place you can go on that forum and you can learn about maybe people who know doctors who do prescribe uh, now Zone using the Sinclair method and stuff like that. It helps people kind of network and and um, it's kind of handy.
1: Yeah, sure. I can I uh, can send you some links for your readers. Yeah, I'd be quite happy to do that.
0: Well, thank you very much. I've really enjoyed this conversation. It's been enlightening. Um, it might be a controversial subject for some of my listeners, but that's okay. I think that it's important that we. Um, educate ourselves about the newest treatments in drug and alcohol addiction uh, because there's a lot going on out there, you know, and this is just one option of uh, many out there that will help people. It won't help everybody, but it certainly helps a lot of people. Thank you very much, dear. Thank you, Joe. It's been pleasure. And that concludes another episode of AA Beyond Belief the podcast thank you for listening everybody i certainly appreciate it i hope you enjoyed that episode as much as i enjoyed having the conversation with gary what a great guy he is Uh, next week we'll be speaking with our friend bob k who has written a new book it's actually an historical fiction about bill w so that should be interesting a lot of good stuff coming up if you enjoy this podcast and would like to support us please consider making a monthly donation at patreon Uh, You can visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash AABeyondBelief. Only if you can do it. A dollar or two a month will help out a great deal for paying for the expenses of the podcast. So uh, we'll be back again real soon. You all take care and be well.